Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation from a very overcasty, spitting some rain day. We're hoping to see the sun here soon. But you know, today I have a guest. She just exudes positive energy, and I can see why she makes such a great human rights attorney, which is, I've been waiting to talk to someone in the human rights world. She is a private immigration lawyer exclusively devoted to complex family based immigration, deportation defense and U.S. citizenship law. She is a certified specialist in immigration and nationality law. She has been practicing federal immigration since 2000. She works one-on-one with individuals, families across the U.S. and the world. She is internationally published author on family-based immigration and deportation defense issues. She also represents clients in federal court lawsuits against the government and is licensed in the Central District Court of California and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Voted super lawyer, criminal defense, white collar. I would love and very excited to welcome Heather Poole. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Oh, yeah. It's just a nice resume. I I actually had to cut it down a little bit. I'm sorry, because your list was very long and I loved it, but I wanted to take the creme de la creme. So... I'm thrilled to talk to you because obviously this podcast is to talk about issues that have people go through really tough situations and how do they come out of it. So we're talking about obviously a very hot button issue, immigration. So from a human perspective, why do you think this is such a divisive subject? I think there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of people have their personal experiences with, um, you know, knowing someone else who new an immigrant or someone who blames losing their job on an immigrant and also all the politics and the misinformation out on the internet hasn't helped. You know, immigrants have typically been blamed for taking U.S. citizen jobs, which has been disproven over and over again. But unfortunately, immigrants don't have a large rally behind them who are voting, you know, for reform. And comprehensive reform has been a political subject for decades. Mm -hmm. And the system just doesn't work the way it is. And depends on which administration's in charge, they're going to focus on one part of it. But what we need is comprehensive reform. And unfortunately, politics is really never going to make that happen. So we have to try to make advancements wherever we can. Right. So, you know, you had a quote on your website from Bill Clinton, which I just love this. Mm -hmm. It said, more than any other nation on earth, America has constantly drawn strength and spirit from wave after wave of immigrants. In each generation, they have proven to be the most restless, most adventurous, most innovative, most industrious people. So 
is it the media that we don't know this? Like that is such a powerful statement because it is true. I mean, I know there's statistics that back it up, but do you think it's the media? I think that's part of the problem. I don't know if it's that they don't know about it. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't sell, right? right? The founder of Yahoo, you know, not being from this country, right? A lot of the Nobel Peace Prize winners in the sciences were not born in this country, but are U.S. citizens, mm-hmm. right? We don't focus on the positive. What sells publications is the negative, right? Right. And the stories that just aren't the everyday hardworking immigrant. I mean, I am so fortunate. I get perspective every day in my work that I'm so grateful to be born here because most of my clients come from countries where they can't get ahead and they work so hard when they're here mm-hmm. and they create jobs by founding right. businesses in the United States and, you know, helping family members who are also going to work hard and bring in, you know, more business, more money to our economy. These are stories that really need to be focused in the media as well. So we have some balance. Right. That balance is a great word because it doesn't feel like there's much balance because it's like, it's obviously strikes a lot of emotion with people. So how do you handle such an emotional situation when the law doesn't really take emotion into consideration? Like how do you balance that place with your clients? A lot of the conversations I have uh, when I'm consulting with a couple, let's say, and this is their first really exposure to immigration. This, the U.S. citizen, say, has fallen in love with a woman who maybe have overstayed her visa years ago, and she's been living, just looking over her shoulder, right, waiting for something to happen. And he's like, I can't believe this. I'm a U.S. citizen. She should be able to stay here. It shouldn't matter that she's been here illegally, you know. And it's the understanding, right, that um, just because you're married to a U.S. citizen, uh, you don't you don't get to extend those rights to someone else. And it feels wrong. And Mm -hmm. beyond this, even with a U.S. citizen and saying, gosh, I get it. I understand. I totally get it. You know, and and because of this issue in her past or because of the law, the way it is now, you know, we may not be able to do the simple path. We may be able to do this. So we're going to do this first. We have to go through a deportation court, all this different stuff. And it's the the not only misunderstanding, but the frustration that um, it should be easier. And, yeah. and I remember, I am reminded every day, my goodness, can you imagine if these people tried to do this on their own, right? right? Trying to get through the system and understand the law. So forms, it looks simple. And a lot of people get themselves into trouble by trying to file it themselves, not realizing that every question on those forms has a legal consequence. And right. many of the times they're in front of an immigration officer and the wife gets taken by ICE out of the room because of something she did in the past and based on some of the answers that she has in the forms. Or she's not going to get her green card at all and they're just staring there in disbelief going, we didn't know that. It just happened, and, right. Yeah, and a lot of the conversations I have is, well, that's not fair. We didn't know the law. And I feel like a horrible person saying, well, I'm sorry, they're not going to care that you didn't know the law. So right. it's it's a really complicated system. I mean, next to tax law, I think it's the most complicated area of law. And there's so many people who are under the impression that, that it's easy or that they can't trust a lawyer because it came from a country where lawyers are the same as police. And you can't trust them either. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot that we have to get through to not only get rapport, but uh, – break through those barriers of you need to be able to trust someone who's competent and then trying to figure out with no support network coming to this country who to trust. 
Right. Right. Because I mean, from like an emotional standpoint, right, your, your emotion is you want to change your life. I mean, I, I try to get right. into the heart of a lot of people, right? They want to change their life or their, like you said, their spouse, their children, you mm-hmm. know. Um, mm-hmm. And so the law, like I said, doesn't take into consider that emotion. So how do you how do you work with them to get them through the emotion or do you? You have to. And in, in my area of, of law, <laughs> I get a lot of referrals from business immigration attorneys because they're like, we don't want to deal with the emotion. I <laughs> just want to do right. the transactions. And, and, you know, I really respect the job that they have to do for companies. But when it comes to problems of individual employees, they're like, oh, we don't want to handle the drama. Go see Heather. And the, <laughs> the, the first thing that we talk about is, you know, obviously what, what's going on, how their life is right now with nothing resolved and what their concerns are. And a lot of the times it's, yeah, the family member who's stuck abroad and they're trying to bring them back and they got some bad advice from somebody. And so I feel like most of the time in my initial meeting with a client, it's letting them talk and letting them get it all out. Right. And then I ask them sometimes, you know, have you, have you talked to a a counselor about this? Have you, have you talked to a therapist about this? Because this is not going to be an easy, short process. You guys Mm -hmm. have to have the emotional wherewithal to hold on, especially deportation cases when a majority of them, even when they're represented by good counsel, they end up denied. And so you have to appeal and the appeals process can be many years. And even if you Mm. have the money for all of that, it's just the limbo that continues is so hard, you know, to, to have this wherewithal and not give up. Uh, And in the worst case scenario, you know, hurt yourself or, or give up on life entirely or go back home and, and face danger. Right. Well, that that's, you know, kind of how I see it, because I visualize a lot of things where you have this emotional thing happening where you want a better life, right? You want a better life for you, your family. And then you've got this system that you have to kind of, you know, go through. Is there a reason that most people, when they come in, they don't just apply for citizenship and they are here illegally? Is it because it's too hard to apply for it? Or why are there so many people that just don't apply for citizenship? Ooh, that's a hard question to answer. Um, many different factors, right? Um, ignorance of the law, uh, distrust of the system, not having financial resources, um, not thinking they qualify for anything. There, there's lots of different reasons. Uh, and mm-hmm. also for, for trauma survivors, they're just glad to be somewhere safe and they just rather safe. hide, right? And not yeah. face the problem. I have a lot of bury my head in the sand kind of clients. And part mm-hmm. of my job, I mean, a complicated waiver case for unlawful presence for years of being here. We should be able to get a really strong case out in three months, but part of our job is constantly calling the client, encouraging them to break down the list we gave them, get us a few documents at a time because they easily get overwhelmed and want want to go back to sticking their head in the sand because that's Mm -hmm. safer for them. It's too hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, because I can see that from an emotional standpoint. I mean, we as humans, I think when things start to get tough, we just, well, look at us almost as a society right now. It's like, let's just put your head in the phone. You know, we don't have to deal with it. Right. We don't have to deal with the, you know, kids at the dinner table that are screaming, just give them the iPad kind of thing, which, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it it starts in this place of like not wanting to deal with it and how do we emotionally handle something that's so big, so emotional, so hurtful scary. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of that is to shut that off. But but there are a lot of people, I think, that come into the country really want to do well, right? I mean, there's people yes. that want to come in and there's statistics. I saw you had some statistics somewhere that 
talked about the fact that, you know, there's, there's, I don't know, $10 billion or something a year for in, or, um, revenue for, what was that? Um, yeah, it was something, something crazy, like up 10 billion to uh, the economy each year. Um, you know, and I, I think that's an all, oh, really, that's an old figure. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah. I was looking for the date on that. So yeah. What, so it, what do you think it is? More now. Yeah. But I, because we also, you know, one thing I always think of, like, if we didn't have immigrants that were working and I know there's crackdowns and there should be laws and taxes and things. And I, you know, I'm, I'm in agreement. I'm, I'm really sitting in the middle of this, this issue. Um, right. But how would we eat? <laughs> right. Rice, rice. I mean, how would we eat? It's a complicated issue. I don't issue, think we realize. Right? Yeah. Right. I mean, um, they say that the, con- the economy of California would collapse if all undocumented right. immigrants just walked away from their job. Right. right. Uh, but these are the same people. I have found who are working multiple jobs to bring, mm-hmm. uh, you know, money and in, money into the family so they can feed their families. Uh, mm-hmm. and they want to, they're, they're saving money so they can buy homes. They're saving money so they can send mm-hmm. some back home. Right. These are very hardworking individuals who have not committed any crimes. Uh, they would just, they would give us more in taxes. And a lot of them are unfortunately, you know, in the position where if they don't have a social security number, then, Sometimes they, they make it up, uh, and that way they, they're paying into the system, but they're never going to see those benefits, right? Uh, right? And others just get paid below minimum wage because they don't have a social, and the uh, employer can take advantage of them, right? right. Uh, but that's one part of immigration. I think, and that's the part, I think, that tends to be focused on a lot by the media, there are so many immigrants in between, right? Our, our scholars, right. our business owners, right? Right. People who really not only support the economy, but they're creating jobs themselves. And I would love right. to see more of those stories focused on. Right. That's why, that's why to me, I, like I said, I sit in the middle of the issue of try to go get into the system, do it correctly. And yet at the same time as you are, because I, I mean, one of my favorite stories is a, a woman who's helped us around the house for years and all she wanted was her two children to to have a better life and she went and, and she would bring her book and we would study with her and mm-hmm. now her daughter is in biochemistry at Vanderbilt and she's like wow. the highest scholarship they've had and it, to me that is the american story that yeah. you know here's someone who came here got into the system correctly really worked hard at it and um, that's what my, always been my biggest question. I've seen her do it. I've seen her children just completely be in a whole different world. And that's all she really wanted. And I just wish more people could could see that story. Right. So uh, I get that complaint, um, you know, occasionally from someone who who doesn't really do the research, which I understand. It's easy to to follow sound bites that the um, if they had just done it the right way, like everyone else, and wait in line for their turn, I remember there was a there was a CBP high end up officer who was interviewed on the radio one time. I think it was on NPR, and he said, "Yeah, they just do it the right way." And I just started laughing. I was like, "Are you kidding me? Have you looked at the visa numbers available for the family categories for Mexico, the Philippines, and India? If you are a U.S. citizen and you're sponsoring your brother or sister from Mexico, they're not going to get here for thirty years." Wow. And you're asking for, you know, we need to have a deterrent. We need to have enforcement to stop people at the border. Or no, we need comprehensive immigration reform because Congress needs to go back to those country-specific numbers that haven't been uh, changed since 1980 and say, hey, this is not realistic anymore. You have all of these people. I mean, 
if you are being sponsored by your permanent resident um, parent and you are now in the Philippines and you've turned, you're over 21, if you get married uh, and not willing to wait the 30 to 40 years to immigrate based on that category, you're completely out of luck. Your, your case is terminated. There's no category for a married son or daughter of a permanent resident, right? So it, it's so unrealistic, the waiting periods, that when people say, well, if they did it the right way, well, the right way is going to take decades. It's ridiculous. And these people are related to U.S. citizens most of the time. Wow, that's just crazy. You can't focus on one area of immigration. can't just focus on right. enforcement. can't just focus on right. benefits, right? That's why we've been pushing for years as immigration lawyers for comprehensive immigration reform, right? right. And, and it's right. really sad how much politics, you know, the pendulum swings in this area of law. I remember when W was in charge and he um, talked about a guest worker program that he was going to introduce and hope Congress would work on it. And we just kept getting, you know, calls after call. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand how American politics works. The president may be behind, you know, a positive active mm -hmm. reform, but it's going to get stuck but, in committee in Congress. It doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Right. Right. So right. It, it's an understanding of how politics works too. And the system, we, we can try to, to take advantage and make small improvements here and there, but no one in Congress cool. is going to advocate for a complete immigration reform because they're fearing they're not going to get reelected. Right. Which is which is exactly where I want to go, because that that about reelection, right, about election, because I I just feel like our general voting public doesn't quite understand the idiosyncrasies of immigration. But I, I, I want to go back to one second, a st stat that I found is from, from 1892 to 1924. Ellis Island was America's largest and most active immigration station, where over 12 million immigrants were processed. Mm. On average, the inspection process took three to seven hours. Where did we go from there <laughs> to this place that is so outrageously complicated that it's going to take 30 years? I mean, how, how did we get there? Yeah. Politics? Um... I think so. The Immigration and Nationality Act has been amended a zillion times, it seems. Uh, even the citizenship laws have been amended, I think, eight times in the last hundred years. Uh, but there are, all, there are still some laws that were valid way back then, you know, about things about inadmissibility. You, you can't get your green card. You can't get entrance, right, if there, if there are certain health conditions. And that's what they were really focusing on, right, at Ellis Island was health conditions, criminal conditions, that kind of thing. But really ref the negative kind of reform happened years after that, where we started, you know, tightening down the Chinese exclusion act. And then it was one act after another. And then the immigration and nationality act splintered off where if you were from a certain country, then this, this part so of the act started to splintering. I see. Yeah. I see. So, yeah. Okay. So as I go back and I look at you know, talk to people like yourself. And it's really a lot of his education, isn't it? Like we need to be more educated on, it is an intense process because it has splintered over the years from, you know, Ellis Island to, you know, now what you said, different countries, different, you know, things that happened, like, you know, when, when COVID hit, like this country could come in and this country couldn't, it was like, but we have this image for some reason of, and I think it is the media of people at the border, you know, mm -hmm. Yeah. People that want to come in that are murderers and that we got that whole thing that happened, you know, that was a horrible soundbite from a humanistic standpoint. Mm -hmm. How do we humanize these people more? How do, how can we humanize these people that that want a better life? They need help. Their children are in danger. Like, how, how do we do that? I think telling better stories, 
right? The, the positive contributions of immigrants is a good place to start. I think also our leaders need to take responsibility uh, for how they present immigration, right? Unfortunately, mm-hmm. for and it really depends on the administration, but and you know, people say, "Oh, you must be a flaming Democrat." Well, yes, I am, but I've not really been happy with President Obama. Um, you know, he was very smart about DACA. If you if you think about when DACA first right. happened, that happened in his second term. He didn't right. uh, introduce that in his first term because he wanted to get reelected, right? Mm-hmm. Like how many yeah. people that could have helped, right? Right. But he did have a great priority list um, as to who, you know, the government would go after, right? They're going to go after, you know, felons and, and people who were recently, um, you know, crossed the border illegally. Just the, the realistic notion that we can't go after everybody. We have limited resources, right? Uh, right. And it, it allowed more prosecutorial discretion. Uh, and then that's the same priority list that, you know, within days of getting into office, President Trump threw out and said, no, we're going after everybody, which to right. us was like, that's so unrealistic. There's only already at that point, 1.5 million backlog cases in deportation proceedings. And most of these people don't have attorneys. So these things, you know, could drag on and you know, the judges are just, you know, hanging on themselves. With awesome. quotas yeah. And yeah, yeah. And then you get Biden and, and everyone's, oh, this is great. You know, he's going to be like Obama. And they forget that even under Obama, there were more deportations under his reign than all the presidents before him combined. Right. You know, right. so it, it's not necessarily, you know, a, a political party that's going to be the saving grace on this issue. It's both parties have to work together and be realistic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's why I say it was looked like I, I can't believe it was three to seven hours, you know, back in the 20s. And here we are today, 30 years. It's just it blows my mind. Right. But how do you uh, you know, you told me a story um, not too long ago about a, a child that um, was having some issues and, you know, with his family. Can you tell me that story again? That was like how we can like look sure. at the system itself. Sure. So it was a, an asylum case for um, an 11 year old child who uh, it was one from one of the triangle countries. I can't, I can't really say more since it's an active case, but That's Latin fine. America, uh, okay. who um, was walking to school one day and saw a gang, uh, a couple gang members uh, murder a man right in front of him. And at the time, gang members were all over the territory. And they, they said to the kid, you know, you better join us or else. And he very bravely said no and walked away. And so the gang started relentlessly going after him and his family. They'd show up on the the front lawn of their house, uh, threatened to kill his parents, threatened to kill his uh, younger brothers. And they showed up his dad's work. Right. Um, and the kid kept going to school. They approached, they approached him on the way. So mom started, um, you know, going with him on the buses, uh, you know, trying to avoid gang members, but they were everywhere. So eventually they just realized when the threats were getting so bad that there was no safe place. So they tried staying with a family member, uh, you know, hours away in this very small country. And, um, they saw more gang members there and they knew that the gang was very interconnected through the entire country. So they said, we got to get out of here. And they fled to the U S and during that time, it was Obama's era. Uh, he would separate families. He'd put, um, men in one detention center and the women and children in another. So that's what happened to this family. 
the the mom and and the boys were eventually uh, released on their own recognizance and put in removal proceedings uh, in Los Angeles, where they ended up moving to. Dad was shipped up to a detention center, was not released, uh, and he had a removal hearing um, in Michigan. Same facts, right? They're all afraid of returning because of what the kids saw. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dad's case under uh, tutelage of a good attorney, still lost, uh, and he was deported back to this country. And within days, he was beaten up by gang members who said, where's your son? We're looking for him, Mm -hmm. right? Mm. So I was, I took on the, the mom and the mm. kids case pro bono way back in, this is 2015. Um, and it was a good, strong case. We ended up losing in Los Angeles, which is typical. Um, unfortunately, uh, the, the asylum standard, it, you know, 10% likelihood you're going to be persecuted if you return, but it feels like it's a 90% standard in practice, right? It just, it's not, yeah. Oh, granted. And plus he was, um, he was, uh, this was a situation involving gangs. And I think the federal government, um, and especially the board of immigration appeals that decides whether the judges were correct are, and the courts are really concerned about opening those floodgates, right? The minute we Mm -hmm. say that, you know, your persecution from a gang member or resistance of gang recruitment can be a basis for political asylum, then everybody's going to come here. Right. So it's very, very tied to politics. Yes. Yeah. So, so this case went, um, up to the board of immigration appeals. We were successful on, on some issues. And so it was remanded back to the Los Angeles court and, um, over the next couple of years, then COVID hit. So it kept getting pushed and kicked the can Mm. down the road. And we just had our third trial on this. Um, and the kid is now 18 years old and, um, you know, I'm, I'm preparing him for the trial. And, you know, at first we did in the first trial, we did a long declaration and and mom testified on what she knew, but he was too young, right? We didn't want to Mm -hmm. re-traumatize. So, um, what I noticed in preparing him was he had lived with all this trauma all this time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, felt such responsibility that he caused mm. this situation for his parents and his brothers oh. to be at risk. And he didn't want them knowing, right. He felt guilty enough for this. And so he kept all of these, this emotional pain, all of this guilt to himself. And it really started reeking out into other parts of his life. You know, mm. when he, he described things to me, the, the level of anxiety that he had and he'd have a, a mm. twitching leg and he, he couldn't get more than four hours at night sleep. And this has been going on for seven years and just getting worse and worse and worse. Mm. And he had counselors through school, helped him a little bit. But as an asylee, he was very scared of trusting counselors and telling them everything, telling him his sure. story. And sure. he also just didn't want to rehash it. Right. Because it, it, it well, brings how, it all I was going to say, how would he trust anybody? How could you trust in that coming out of that situation? How could you trust anyone at all? I just can't even imagine as a teenager like that or, you know, young teen coming into that. uh, How could you even begin to trust anybody? So you just suck it in. Right. That's the trauma. Right. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I I had this discussion with my said, look, I, you know, you're my client, your mom's your client, but you need help. I'm not a therapist. And, and what you're describing to me is dangerous. I I don't want this to get worse for you. And you know, this has been a long process. It's going to continue to be a long process Mm -hmm. said, because the way the law is now in the ninth circuit, we're probably going to lose again, or we have to appeal it again. But what we're trying to do is save your life and save your kid, your, your mom and your dad Mm -hmm. and your your brother's lives. 
So you got to focus on the positive. You're still able to go on with your college career. You're still able to play soccer. You're still able to be here and have a life and work as well while this is all going on. But you have to be in this for the long haul. You need to have the stamina. And I think you need to see a therapist to make that possible. Right. Because, I mean, what kid, what kid seriously can be put into a situation like that? That is just so, you know, uh, traumatic yet. He has to function every day. He still has to see his family. He has to go to school. He has to pass his classes. I mean, that's where I just, I, I want to move into a little bit of the transformation side of our conversation because peeling away all this other stuff, we've had these amazing humans that are sitting there, right? These little birds that are just, and I look at the kids and I see, you know, the, the separation of families and stuff. But when you're preparing someone like this, you know, and, try to get therapy when they don't have that access, what do you do? I mean, is there, I mean, how, how do you handle that? How do you personally handle it? Uh, I do try to find them a therapist um, or mm-hmm. at least group therapy where there's no cost. Um, uh, and in his situation, he gave me permission to talk to his mom about it. Finally. Uh, you know, so you'll be surprised. I mean, they've, because of the asylum process, she's had the right to work um, within a year, you know, of, of, um, them coming here, we're able to get her that. And so she's been able to make a living. They've been able to pay rent. You know, they're, they're good, responsible human beings. And so, you know, they could afford that and they, and they're right. savers. Right. So, right. but there are a lot of nonprofits in Los Angeles that provide that service as well for those mm-hmm. who don't have any right. money. Right. Right. And luckily for this kid, um, he's, been his own therapist in a way by trying to distract himself, which happens a lot mm. in these, these trauma cases mm-hmm. where if I just don't think about it, you know, it's a different version of putting your head in the sand. If I don't think about it and I just try to stay as busy as possible, th- then it won't be there. Right. So, so he, um, is actually, uh, a counselor in, in its own right to other little kids. He's a, a volunteer football coach, uh, or, yeah, they call it football in Latin America, mm. soccer, right? Uh, right? And so he and he's advising them. This is why you don't join a gang. This is how your life is going to be different if you join a gang. Wow. Right? Now that's got to be a healing process, part of it. But that's the yeah. there's what I'm talking about. How to find avenues of healing that you yeah. know, especially young people, you know, don't even have a concept that they even need to heal. I mean, that's I think most people they pack it in, like you said, energetically it packs comes either out of sickness or addiction or anger or, you know, and mm. to have that kind of outlet in that sense is um, one of the reasons that this podcast is existing. Like, how do we help people that are going through that? Then mm. they have to go through the court system and it drags on and then they have to relive it again. And especially kids that, you know, young people like that and mothers who have to see their children go through this, it's just got to be. Um, but, you know, th- again, I want to go back to the question is like, how do we get people to find more compassion for this scenario versus like, well, they didn't do the right thing. Like, you know, it's like, how, how do we, I mean, I know myself, it's like, stop. Do you, did you see the seed that came, what came with that? You know, like how how do we just have to change our language? Um, You know, we should not be so quick to judge that there's always extenuating circumstances uh, one of my favorite cases early on in my career was a woman who was arrested for domestic violence against her husband. And she had taken, she had represented by a public defender and was now potentially ineligible for um, a green card uh, based on a moral character issue. And she had left her husband. So she just was 
she was this tiny little model from uh, New Zealand. She was five foot two. Her husband was like big, big bodybuilder, you know, almost twice her size. And so she comes into my office and she was referred to me by a business entertainment immigration lawyer. And he says, see what you can do for her. Cause we we're out. We don't know. We can't even get, we can't even get her a renewed modeling contract and do anything. So I talked to her and the more it comes out, her husband, um, again, twice her size had tried to rape her. And so she had taken the only defense she had as a little girl, a little person was the acrylic nails that she had. And she scratched him in the chest to get him off of her. And so she couldn't afford a private attorney. Instead, she had a public defender. The first one hit on her. So she was in mm. over the weekend oh. because she requested a second um, public defender. And then this one mm. said, well, we don't want you to have jail time. So this will avoid jail time. Not thinking that, wait a second, she could have immigration consequences to this, right? Right. And so she took the deal, comes to me. I said, look. Um, I think you can prove this was an issue of self-defense and we're going to file for you under the violence against women act and prove that your U S citizen husband was physically and emotionally abusive. I mean, he refused to bail her out of jail, but then wanted to get back with her as soon as she, you know, got her own bail. Got him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she bravely said, uh, uh-uh, I'm going to figure it out on my own. So, Good. you know, within a couple of years, she became a green card holder. She went through therapy, really helped her a lot, but Great. she still had this emptiness of, you know, I hated being in this position. I was a successful career woman. I never thought this would happen to me. Right. So she said, I, I need to switch my career. I need other women to know this. And the transformational process when someone gets their green card, especially mm. when they do it, you know, where it's empowering process, like the violence against women act. Within uh, a year, she became an EMT, going out mm. to the scene of domestic violence survivors and comforting them. Oh and then gosh. she became a paramedic. And then when, oh. when she was eligible to become a citizen years later, we were talking in the lobby before her interview. And she said, I got to tell you about how my life is so changed. I said, well, what's going on now? And she said, I just got um, the head position in a clinic at the largest hospital to wow. run the whole thing. And I get to wow. work with domestic violence survivors every single day. Wow. And, you know, wow. Wow. Those kind of stories just bring tears to my eyes, you know? Right. right. Give them a chance, right? Yes. Just some of them just need opportunity. And that's why I'm yep. saying, why, why can't we see that as a society? Why can't we look at people to say, I see your heart's in the right place. And I, I trust that you want a better, better life. And not everybody is, you know, is coming in and, and, at this level that just suck off the country is there are people that are really contributing. Um, and I just wish more people would have these, you know, I've got an idea. Maybe we need to start focusing on some really amazing, positive stories of people that have been successful and that they want to contribute to a, a great country like, like ours. And, but where, where do you, um, I mean, do you think like more mental health uh, professionals or services should be offered through the courts? Oh yes. Uh, that's, you know, one of the main uh, issues I have with the deportation system, right? It's all federal um, agency law. And mm-hmm. because it's not criminal setting, you don't get appointed counsel to begin with. So you've right. got four-year-olds whose parents couldn't afford to send them across um, with them who are just stranded and end up in removal proceedings and trying to understand that whole process. So there was a lawsuit in the Ninth Circuit. We were trying to get them to realize that there needs to be appointed counsel, right? That the law should, should have this uh, avenue for kids. Nope. Didn't win on that. 
So there's so many out there who don't even have that, right? They're lucky if they're able to find a nonprofit who can, um, you know, put these kids with foster uh, parents or with a, a grandmother who's here. But then priority is not necessarily with if they're with a the guardian, putting them in therapy, right? Right. No, meant emotional help versus just here's the right. law. That's why I say there's like, here's the law. This is black and white. This is logic. But there's this whole emotional trauma that's happening over here. And when you have a five, six, seven-year-old, that's only going to expand, right, throughout the rest of your life. Right. And then you add the cultural component to that, right? right? A lot of these people will come from countries where people only go to therapy if they're considered crazy. Right. Right. I get that a lot from my Indian clients. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think that's still some stigma that happens in this country. It's like, you know, right? oh, therapy. It's like, yeah, you mm-hmm. must be super liberal and live in California. It's like, well, yeah, I do, but... <laughs> It's been the best thing that ever happened to me because I took that control and it's making me a better person versus angry all the time or just depressed or whatever. So that's why I look at the system. Like, how do we change this system, Heather? <laughs> that's what I keep trying to talk to people about is can we change the system when it comes down to the emotional support of this? But the one question that I always like to ask is, you know, when people get through this process, do you think healing is a choice for a lot of these people or do you think it's just something they don't think about? Or, But do you think healing is a choice? Hmm. Not really. I think they need someone to push them for that, that that's a Mm -hmm. priority, right? A lot of people would rather put all that behind them and not think about immigration anymore and everything that went along with it, right? It's easier, right? Not to face that trauma. And we have that real problem with asylees, with, you know, the battered spouses that I work with. But if you can fix their immigration situation, that opens up the ability for them to consider that, Mm -hmm. hey, maybe I can improve other areas of my life. You know, maybe I don't have to constantly relive this, but it's a big barrier, a cultural barrier to focus on anything besides working hard, making money, supporting your family, right? Putting yourself last. Yeah. Just move on. I mean, I thought that was the whole thing, you know, growing up, it was just like, why can't you just move on? And it's like, well, I can, but I still have this big scar in my heart and I'd Mm. like to just give that a little love and so that I could actually move on. I mean, that's the thing is going backwards a little bit, just to acknowledge it, to talk about it. And so the other thing I always like to ask, what do you do to keep yourself healthy in this very emotional, what do you do? Do you meditate? Do you ride bikes? What do you do to to stay emotionally healthy? You know, I I am so hyper amped personality. I don't think I could do meditation, but you know, (laughs) some of my clients, when I'm talking to them, especially, you know, those who have really been traumatized or subject to really horrendous physical abuse, they'll ask me, you know, this is probably the worst thing you've ever heard. And I want to say to them, oh, you know, not really, you know, (laughs) so time, right. Hearing horrendous stories over and over again and being able to separate at the end of my day. But, you know, I'm still working on that, you know, 23 years later Mm -hmm. that sometimes, you know, I'll go to bed thinking about a case, right? Because I know every single one of these, if you file a work permit late, if you miss a deadline, if you don't do this now, this person is a month later until they can, you know, feel like they're safe and not get hounded by ice. It's a sense of great responsibility that a lot of immigration attorneys have. I would imagine. And so my hat's off to all of them, right? Yeah. But for me... It's really a constant struggle with taking self-care. <laughs> you know? yeah. Self-care. Heather, walk yes. away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I do really sort of extreme sports kind of activities because it takes my full concentration. So I can't really think about work easily. 
So luckily being in Southern California, I love to scuba dive in very cold waters. Oh, wow. I, I ski, I snowboard, anything that takes full concentration. And then during the months when I can't do that, I picked up woodworking about three years ago and I'm putting things together oh, wow. in the garage. Yeah. Yeah. Try not to cut off a finger, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really great. I, I love that. That's the part that, you know, we've got to find that outlet in that sense, because that's a lot of energy you hold and a lot of emotion. And so, Heather, I really want to thank you today. This has really been an incredible conversation. Just such great work you're doing. And again, I go back to just human rights. We're just humans and we need to look at each other as humans and hearts and bodies and minds. And everybody's got a story, right? I mean, I think you've said that before. And I think that it's just something we need to just continue to talk about and think about. So thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you talking to me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Well, everyone, thanks again for joining me. And remember, let's have some compassion and go out and spread some love. Talk again. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find your books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you.